Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, the podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hypersexualized times of ours. And in today's episode, I have a super cool guy named Patrick Erlinson. And I attempt to say his name for the first time in a long time on the podcast. He's actually been on the podcast before. I am an idiot and I didn't remember that fact and I was acting like it was his first time, but he already spoke about human trafficking before, of course. And that was an impactful episode that a lot of people got back to me and said, thank you so much because we know how egregious and evil human trafficking is, but how do we participate in that? So Patrick helped to unravel that. Today, we're gonna get into fatherhood more. We actually bounce around quite a bit talking about a lot of like, this was an enlightening conversation for me, the entire conversation. I gained so much of it. I'm positive you will learn a lot too. New insights, new ways of understanding how porn is impacting us, how we undermine ourselves with our behavior. If you are a woman, please listen to this episode. If you are a man, please listen to this episode. This is a super important episode to understand how our society is being impacted by kind of subversively attacking men. Men and women are both under attack, don't get me wrong, but this talks about the story of how men are being attacked and how that's impacting our society and our homes and our minds and our hearts. So without further ado, please welcome Patrick Erlinson to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. So this is really cool. We have somebody here that He's been a part of our High Noon world. He actually gave an amazing testimony a few years back at one of our live events and is very powerful. And he's always kind of there for us in an amazing way. But at the same time, he's doing his own thing. And that own thing is what we're going to get into today because it's something that I don't think we really know what's happening in much detail in terms of like how our families are being broken apart and how that's impacting society and vice versa, right? But also the mechanisms by which this is happening. It's very subversive, obviously. If it was obvious to us, then we would stop it, right? When there's like an obvious threat, then we all pile our resources and gang up against it. Like the Nazis in Germany is like, hey, let's go kill them. But this is a lot more insidious because it's happening between the cracks and it's happening in this space that we can't quite identify. So we are going to work together today to identify what is going on specifically with fathers and listen, half of the world are women, but trust me, this is really important for you too to understand what we're going through because there's a lot of stuff that we don't understand of why we do the things we do and we don't understand why. This is all, we're all being played, but if we can understand the game and what's happening, we can all support each other, be on the same team and being on the winning side, which hopefully will take us to the promised land. So first of all, welcome to Mr. Patrick. Erlinson, I always get nervous saying your last name because there's a lot of ways in which you can't say it, but I would say Erlinson with a softy, not a hardy. Okay. Well, can we hear you say your name? Erlinson. I mean, it's just an echo of what you said. Okay. Yeah, you nailed it. It usually becomes like Erlinson or in Japan, it's Arangoson. It goes a lot more. I always get a kick out of people here, like the Asians. After COVID, you started having this kind of looking at all the microaggressions and all of the assaults from Asians. I remember seeing one show and they were talking about, man, every time I go into Starbucks, they mess up my name. I was going, man, every day my name got messed up when I was living in Japan. And it's like, <laughs> if you can have your feeling turned every time somebody who doesn't speak your language doesn't say your name correctly, well. Yeah, I can't even say my own name. So I think we should all just 
chill out on that. It's just the name, guys. So, Mr. Erlinson, welcome. Thank you, first of all, for making time for this to happen. Because I know that you are still actively helping people learn the language of English while you're also saving fatherhood at large. So thank you for making time and space for this. And one more. I have now three full-time jobs. So my mother is 99. She's doing well, 100 this year. And my wife and I live with her. And so we take care of her, which is a really beautiful experience. She mistakes me for my dad a lot, which mm. is, ever since I grew the beard, because my dad had a beard. Yeah. And so now she goes back and forth between realizing who I am, calling me my dad. That's psychedelic. That might be kind of, I don't know, manifest destiny in a way too, because maybe you are turning into your dad in some way. Well, it is interesting. She looked at me the other day and she looked straight in my eyes and she goes, now I realize with my whole heart how much I love you completely. <laughs> and it was like this really like, whoa. <laughs> and I don't know if she was talking about dad or me. You can take it on behalf of both. Maybe you represent both now. Right? Because they say the closer you are in age to death, the closer you are spiritually to that next life, right? So there's a possibility that you are somehow intertwined with your father in ways that you can't even perceive that she can't. We always attribute it to mental illness or like the decay of the mind, but it could also be the enhancement of the spirit as well. Is that yeah. a possibility? She's much more, you see her be really spiritually sensitive. And sometimes you just feel she's talking from interacting with spirit world. I mean, you just get that feeling. She talks to my dad. It's an interesting experience. And I feel like I represent my whole family. I got six brothers and sisters. And I feel like I'm the one who's blessed to be with her every day. And so I represent them. And also, interesting, I feel this closest to my dad because I feel like I'm loving his wife. I have this chance to really take care of her for him until they're reunited. And it's a humbling and really beautiful experience. That's a very unlikely impromptu segue to the fact that we're talking about fatherhood and you're turning into your father somehow. <laughs> That's really cool. Some aspects of my father. Sure, sure. Well, restoring, right? We're meant to get better every iteration of ourselves. That's the hope. Well, that's a really cool job. To be honest, yesterday I was coming home. I'm presently staying in Mongolia. We're here for the summer. And there is this older lady who looked like she had been dead for a bit and then came back to life barely. And they're like the entrance of the place where we're living in has like maybe an eight foot gap between the first set of doors and the second set of doors. And it took her over 10 minutes. And I had to hold the door open for like five minutes of that. And the entire time, half of me wanted to just kind of go because this is a long time of doing nothing. But at the other end of that, I realized that there is a reason why we slow down in all of our faculties when we get older, but you're not in such a rush anymore. You're physically slower. A lot of times, maybe a little bit mentally slower, but you're also more reflective. So it's kind of like the West has not figured out really how to revere age. We fear it. We vilify it. Every wrinkle is a sign of our ultimate demise and we try to just rip it off our face, right? But it's actually this beautiful thing. The East is much more... I don't know, has a healthier relationship with age. So it's cool that you get to go through that together with your wife. Yeah, it is really beautiful. And it does, I mean, I think reflecting more on my father too, on his life, his values, the things that he really instilled in myself and also my brothers and sisters. I mean, he was an only child. And then he goes and has seven kids. Talk about falling into the twilight zone. He was a really good dad. He was an academic. So he lived in this kind of academic environment and he didn't have, the real world experiences that someone who has to make a business and has to make a living in the world. He had a very different kind of take on things. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, that's kind of like 
pastors or tribal elders who don't have to worry about making money so much. Their job is to think for you or to feel for you when you're too busy to do those things and to remind you of what's important. So that's really cool. I want to find out, because we're getting into the territory of father, you're talking about your dad, but like, why is fatherhood so important to you? So guys, just so you know, this is foreshadowing for the fact that our dear Patrick here is working to help fatherhood. So the reason why we're tackling this is for this very reason. So I want to know first why he has invested so much of himself, because every time I see him on Facebook, he's promoting Father Khan. He's working in the trenches. So why is it so important to you? There's a lot of dads out there, but not so many of them care this deeply about fatherhood as somebody like you. It's two things that really kind of motivated me. One was I learned about human trafficking. So I took over the subcommittee of the Human Trafficking Task Force in Long Beach after I learned about human trafficking through my time working with UNHCR, with the refugee agency of the UN that had an office in LA. I won't recap all of that. They can go back to the other podcast. My heart just kind of cracked open when I learned about what was happening, especially to children and to the most vulnerable people in our society, as far as being exploited. I'll never forget, I heard this interview with a survivor once, and she said, I wouldn't wish my experience on my trafficker. It's like this person is brutalizing me and torturing me and putting me in harm's way all day, every day. And my experience is so traumatic and so terrible, I wouldn't even wish it on him. And I was so moved by that. And I thought, man, what are you going through? that you wouldn't even wish it on your worst enemy, that you wouldn't want them to taste a little bit of what they're putting you through. And so in working, I think I worked about eight years on the prevention of human trafficking, and that really led me to talk to so many survivors. It, it led me to talk to people and just whole, across the spectrum. I've now become friends with men who are arrested for buying 15-year-olds, former traffickers, and just a whole host of girls and some boys that were trafficked themselves, and many of those by a family member. It drove me to really look at, like, why are we producing vulnerable children to the point where they meet someone on Instagram and two weeks later, they're out on a street being sold to men, 10, 20 men a night. How is this happening? That we're losing our daughters to this kind of seduction or, I mean, what's happening? And also, how are our sons coming out of our homes and feeling it's okay to pay for a 12-year-old? And in LA, we had a 12-year-old autistic girl I mean, not just one. I mean, we have more and more people with disabilities are being trafficked because they're malleable, they're incapable of fighting back, and there's a market for it, which is just mind-boggling. We have sons coming out of our homes and feel it's okay for me to pay for a 12-year-old autistic child and do what I want to her sexually. And so I just kept coming back. Like, what is it that's going wrong in our homes that's allowing this to happen to the degree that it is? And I just kind of came, after talking to some survivors, I came to the conclusion, and it kept coming up, that not growing up with a father having an abusive father, having a divorce that tore people apart when they really love their dad and the dad's out the door and he's gone. And in the worst cases of having your father actually traffic you, his father wants to make extra money and he puts his 13-year-old up for sale. So I just kept looking, there was this common denominator of fathers. And the more I looked at it, the more there was this double edge. We always talk about supply and demand, right? It's all business. Anybody who saw the movie Taken where Liam Neeson confronts the guy who's selling his daughter and the guy says, well, it's just business. I have done yeah, yeah. It's supply and demand. I thought, man, if we could get fatherhood right, if we got fathers really engaged and recognizing their significance and the impact they have on their kids, we could solve both the supply and the demand side. I mean, solve it is enormous, but we yeah. could really radically reduce the number of people that are both buying and selling, being sold in this equation. So that was one thing. And then the other was my own struggles as a father. I made an awful lot of mistakes and failed in so many ways that 
really kind of brought me to my knees and seeing what I was missing and realizing that so many men are missing out on the glories and the wonder of being a dad. What an incredible, blessed responsibility it is. And we're not seeing it that way. And since the 60s, there's been just this concerted, intentional whittling away at the significance of the father, especially in early childhood education. And you look back at Lenin. Lenin said very clearly that you give me the first four years of a child's life and I've got him for life. And we've convinced men that they're not that important in early childhood development. And now we're suffering the consequences. Our prisons are overflowing with fatherless kids, runaways, dropping out of school. The list goes on and on. No, no, there's a lot there. I'm reading a book about being an intentional father. And it was saying that I think it's one out of every six or one out of every five men in prison grew up with a father in their house. That means that 85% or whatever that works out to be grew up fatherless. And there's like, that's the common denominator there, right? But one thing that you brought up is something I've never really thought about, which our society is actually really bad about, is allowing the perpetrators of evil to redeem themselves. We have a very unredemptive society where if somebody has done something we want them to just remember that for the rest of their lives and let that define them. And so you brought up the fact that you've talked to people who have trafficked others and who have kind of realized what they were doing and how important that is too, because we have a very bad record in the jail system in America of recidivism, just returning. They leave jail and they come right back because they're learning how to be worse people in jail, not better people. And this is just systemic of the fact that we are not good at giving grace to people. And that's not what this is about, right? But because it is a heinous crime to hurt anybody for any reason, especially to use them and enslave them. That's unbelievably terrible. But at the same time, we're all human as a part of this equation, and we all deserve grace, even the worst of us. In response to that, it's kind of like it's identity, right? What a trafficker tries to do with a girl is get her to identify as a whore. Like if he can get her to buy into that, this is your value. This is your purpose in life, is to satisfy men and make money for me. This is why you exist. And if a girl can accept that because the resistance to it is too painful, if you're going to go out there and have men do whatever they want to your body day after day, and you either have to give up wishing for something better, or you unite with this new identity. There was one guy, one trafficker I read about where he would get a new girl in and he would find out about her. He'd listen to everything you know, about her, finds out that this girl is religious. He would take her out in the street corner and pray with her that she would accept this new life that God has given her. But it's the same thing happens with guys in prison, right? If your identity becomes, I'm a con, I'm a worthless criminal, that's who I am, that's my identity, it's really hard to come back from that. I'll tell you, this last FatherCon we had, so we had our fourth FatherCon conference last April. Our keynote speaker, I've been trying to get him for four years, and I finally got him, Father Gregory Boyle who started Homeboy Industries. They are the leading gang restoration organization in the world. Everybody comes to learn what he's doing. It's about 10,000 gang members a year come out of gangs through Mike. Homeboy Industries. Wow. It's so impressive. But I've been trying to get him to come. Finally, I had a meeting with him and he said, okay, I'll come and speak. And the reason I wanted him was because his whole thing is he looks beyond the tattoos, beyond the fact that this guy was just shooting his neighbor last week. But he says, you're made in the image of God, and that's how I'm going to treat you. And these guys just melt. It's like one of the guys that he was taking care of, this guy's mother, when he was four years old, the mother was flushing his head down the toilet. 
you have these guys who are, their parents are putting out cigarettes on them. Serious mental illness on the part of the parents, but the four-year-old doesn't know that. You go to a gang, a gang is a step up from your family, even though you're pretty much resigned to being dead by the time you're 20 or spending the rest yeah. of your life in prison. But that's a step up from your experience as a child in the home. And so his, his whole thing is, man, see you, who's that really inside of you beyond all the tattoos? And how can I love that person out of you? And I was so moved by him. That's such an important practical point is what we project onto other people, how we treat them and the words that we use, the way that we react when they do or say something is how they, especially if we're in a position of mentorship or if you're the spouse of somebody, you're feeding them a vision of themselves that they ultimately buy into. If they buy into you, then they're buying into the vision that you're projecting. And so how the story that you tell about somebody by how you treat them is ultimately what they believe they're worth or worthy of. And practically speaking, there's so many guys that know on some level that porn is bad and that these actresses probably don't want to be doing what they're doing. Yet at the same time, the people in these videos really are enthusiastic in some cases about what they're doing. They advocate for it. There's a, an increasing number of porn actresses that I've been noticing on different podcasts who are legitimizing their work on OnlyFans or whatever, who are saying this is a legitimate business, who are saying this is no different than in any other. They are actually saying these words. And so it's something that we want to believe as consumers because then it legitimizes the transaction because you want it and I want it. So now we both want it. So we all win. But when you see it from the lens of that's just what somebody's been taught to believe they're worth, that's their worth appraised by their belief system that they've been fed through dysfunction, through whatever. I'm just always trying to give people the tools to bring their conscience back into the equation. And I think that's a very good metric to help assess how am I valuing this person as a child of God, as somebody with eternal value, or as somebody that I just want something from and I'll let them believe what I want them to believe in order for me to get what I need from them. It's a completely different mindset. And I think what you said really helped to clarify that a lot more. You'd bring up a really good point. I think the interesting thing too, though, is the number of people in the industry, when they're in the industry, they won't say anything bad about it. But as soon as they get out of it, all of a sudden, yeah. the floodgate opens. I mean, the cases of the early Linda Lovelace, these people who were, seemed to be so happy, they went on tours talking about how wonderful this all was. And then later, when they finally could get out of it, and they're talking about the brutality of just how horrid it was for them every day, the drugs and, and everything to numb yourself. There is that. If you really buy into an identity and into accepting what's being done to you, and then you can embrace that. I mean, you also see that with trafficking, where you see a girl who fought kicking and screaming against being trafficked. Ten years later, she's trafficking other girls. She sure. got broken. And then now this is the life she knows. And this is how she's going to make her money now is by dragging someone else kicking and screaming into that, knowing that they're going to also overcome. I just think that we all do that to some degree. And it's really important that we can see that mechanism because, you know, the people often that are in our programs, they're addicted to something that they don't want to be addicted to, right? So they join our programs. And there's some underlying reason that's always emotionally based that brings them back to this place that they swore they'd never go back to. And it's so often what you're saying just hits me really hard that it's what I feel I'm actually worth. 
I want to graduate from this behavior, but this at the end of the day is all I think I'm good enough for. And it's really letting something grander than that be your, what we call a North Star goal, something that really drives you, that you stop settling for that. Because like if somebody spit in your face and you have some semblance of self-worth, you're going to walk away, never talk to them or something, right? You're going to do something about it. But if you have no self-worth, you're going to let them spit in your face. But we do that to ourselves constantly. So from the receiving end and from the giving end, we can manipulate others, but we can also manipulate ourselves. And it's important that we see that mechanism. And what you're saying really helps to make that clear, honestly, in a new way for me. I'm seeing this more clearly. It's helpful. I watched a movie recently. One of the characters in the movie said, the tragedy is that you are a better man than you ever allowed yourself to be. And I was really struck by that line. And it's just like, we do that to keep ourselves down. It's like, who benefits from my seeing myself as a jerk, as a piece of trash, as someone who's not worth something better, who's not worth really accepting being loved and accepting that I can actually love someone to health and healing. I have the capacity within me to love another person the way that they really deserve to be loved. But I sell myself short. And I think one of the things that I kind of came to realize just in all of this study and all of this working with fathers was we live in a world that we're trying to make sense of that doesn't make any sense to the way that our brain is designed. I mean, we are not designed to live in a world where your parents lie to you and abuse you and where you have to worry about things being stolen. Our brain's not wired for that. And so we're constantly traumatized. And so we also have to cut ourselves a little slack because we're really trying to navigate a world that we were never intended to live in. And so if we make mistakes, of course, we've inherited stuff and we're finding ourselves in positions having to deal with things that we were never supposed to be exposed to. I mean, for an eight-year-old child to see what's now in violent and humiliation porn, what does that do to an eight-year-old's brain who's trying to make sense of the world, to navigate a world where there's these adult interests and you have kids and you're trying to make sense of who you are and how you're supposed to live this crazy existence in this world. And and then you get exposed to something that totally throws you. This is coming from the adult world. It's supposed to be good. You're supposed to be able to trust adults. And yet this stuff makes me feel totally creeped out. But at the same time, I can't, you know, since I saw it, I can never stop stealing it. I was thinking about that the other day. My first exposure to porn, I think was collecting newspapers for my school. We had a paper drive to support our school and somebody put a whole stack of Playboy magazines out on the street. And it's like, I can still smell those stupid magazines. I mean, it's just like, it's so visceral, burned into my brain. Yeah. And then later to find, you know, my father had Playboy magazines and it was like, he's a really good man. He's a really good father and he's got them, but he's keeping them under the mattress. So it was so confusing on a really deep level that never left me. So it was like, Later in life, you run into something that's like all that gets triggered again, those early childhood exposures, but we're just not built for it. No, that's the, Gabor Mate's latest book is all about that. We don't live in a healthy society. So everything we view would be normal is not good normal. It's just what we're used to normal. It's traumatized people building a world normal. I want to hear about you recently went to speak at the UN. This is a big deal. And we're just like, we're talking casually. It's like, you just got invited to speak at the UN. Let's get into that. It was really an amazing opportunity. I did a presentation last year online on Zoom. They have these side events. And this is in Vienna. So Vienna is where all of the nuclear stuff happens at the offices in Vienna. It's, the UN is divided up into New York and The Hague and Geneva and Vienna. 
So Geneva's got the refugees, you know, human rights and stuff. But UNODC, which is the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, that's the organization that deals with international trafficking and sex trafficking and labor trafficking, drugs and guns, and you know, all that stuff falls under UNODC. So I did a presentation last year, and then they wanted me to come back and actually do an in-person talk about fathers and the prevention of human trafficking. While I was there, I mean, I was only supposed to speak at the side event but they put me on the docket to speak to the plenary session, which means 300 to 400 delegates from all countries around the world. And so I got to do this like within five minutes pitch for why fathers are so important. It was such a moving experience. I mean, as soon as I finished talking, I was explaining, so, you know, they have the sustainable development goals of the UN, some of which are very sketchy, but I wanted to kind of connect to that. I said, look, if you want to really reduce poverty, if you want to keep kids in school, and if you want to reduce violence and violent behavior on kids, we got to invest in fathers. You can't just keep overlooking and trying to rectify the consequences of fatherlessness by paying women or by doing these other kind of investments. You got to try to get fathers educated, aware, inspired to be dads and keep connected to their kids because the data is clear. You're four times more likely to be in poverty if you don't have a dad in the home. You're going to be incarcerated. You drop out of school. I mean, we now have record numbers of kids that are, even if they do sign up for college, they're not graduating. They're dropping out halfway through. And then that makes them less desirable to women. So we got a 60% drop in marriage. We've got horrible conditions of declining birth rates around the world. Korea is the lowest in the world with 0.7% kind of a replacement rate or birth rate in the country, which means within 100 years, the country could be gone. I mean, this is serious. You're talking about economic collapse and social collapse if we don't have kids. And yet we're creating these conditions where it's getting harder and harder for men to be marriageable or even interested in marriage. And there's a whole combination of things happening. The crux of my talk was we have got to start investing in fathers and realizing that this is the real solution to the problems, not just the empowerment of women. We need that too. There are countries where women are really horribly treated and have absolutely no rights. And that has nothing to do with equality that we should be striving for as human beings. But they're completely bypassing and overlooking the significance of fathers. So I spoke and then right away, the delegate from Norway came up to me and he goes, thank you so much. He goes, nobody talks about fathers here. And then five minutes later, the delegate from Chile comes up and he goes, you know, after you talked, I called the ambassador and we want you to come and do something in Chile. And it was, the need was so clear. We're bypassing fatherhood. We know the data. Everyone hears these figures, but they're bypassing it as far as seeing this as something that we can invest in. And I think that's got to change. I think men are in this weird position today. We're not needed to kill any lions, you know, to protect our families. We're not needed as warriors like you needed in cultures in the past. Women are now graduating at higher rates than us. 30% of mothers are making more than their husbands. You have this topsy-turvy displacement of traditional male roles. And we have always, as men, we have pretty much equated our purpose and mission in life to our work. It's career, it's supporting my family financially. That's not necessarily so clear anymore. And so my feeling is what the world needs, we need it for population, we need it for satisfaction, for the mutual benefit that one gets from being a parent. We need to really start raising boys to aspire to fatherhood. Not, what are we asking? What, what are you going to be in life? You're going to be a fireman. You're going to be this or that. 
why don't we start raising boys to start aspiring to father? What kind of father do you want to be? What kind of father are your children going to need you to be? And yeah. the crux of that, the thing that kept coming up with human trafficking over and over and over was kids got to be able to trust their parents and especially their dad. They got to trust that their dad is there for them. And so that means it's on us as dads. We have to become trustworthy people. I got to start thinking early, like, how am I going to be the person that my kid can trust? And when I make a mistake, I own up to it. And I show them that I can be vulnerable to making mistakes and I can reprioritize. So I'm there for my kids. And I think that if we start raising boys to aspire to fatherhood and start really educating them, this is where you're going to get the greatest joy in life, not the car, not the big house, not the bank account. That's not what's going to land your deathbed and go, man, I did it. You know, yeah. you lay in your deathbed and you've got your bed surrounded by kids who love you and want to be like you or want to marry someone like you. There's no fulfillment that compares to that at all. And yet we bought this lie. We've been conned into believing that this is what's going to make us happy. And it's not. And now we're losing it, you know, more than ever before. I mean, men are being displaced. In America today, we have 7 million men, 18 to 54, who are not working, not even looking for work. 7 million men, they stay home. Not even bothering. Video games? What are they doing? Video games, porn. You live your life online. You get a minimum amount of support from the government. And I think that's complicated because we also incarcerate more people than, you know, and primarily men in more than any other nation. And so we have people coming out of prison going, I can't get a job. So screw it. And so that's contributing to it. But the men are checking out of their lives. And then look, number one cause of death of men in the UK is suicide. What are we producing? Yeah. There's so much there. Hey, if you're getting something good from this episode, you will probably really enjoy our other podcast, The Blessed Couple Podcast, where we talk about how to create a smashing marriage and experience God in the process. And yes, we talk a lot about sex. We have incredible guest speakers that I think you're going to really love. All you have to do is search for Blessed Couple Podcast on your favorite podcast player or just click the link in the description of this episode. Thanks. Back to the show. I would like to peel this back a bit and come to some sort of idea of what's at the heart of all this. Because, you know, I was just in Korea last week or, yeah, like a week ago. And you just don't see kids that much. You know, I was just in this nice, humble neighborhood and seeing a little kid because I brought my little kids. They were with me, hungry for hanging out with little kids. The playground was had more old people than young people doing those exercises on those machines. Kind of weird, kind of like a ghost town. And I know that I've heard horror stories in Japan. I heard about this one school where in the entire school, there's one principal, one teacher and one student. That's the whole school because there's just no kids, right? But if you go around, you'll notice that this pattern is, I have my theories about why this is going on. And I'd love to hear from you. Like when you go down to brass, like to the root of what's driving us, there's 7 million men, like you just mentioned, who are sitting at home. They have no fight left in them. They've kind of given up in a sense, but you have a ton of different factors that are lending themselves to this state of mind where men just don't feel like they can be fathers, like they're not marriageable or whatever. But like, what's at the root of this? Because everybody deep down inside wants love. And once you've found love, you want more of it. And if you have a really trusting relationship with somebody, you want to produce life because you want more of that. And the natural conclusion is a child, right? 
but this process is being interrupted. So what do you think is at the root of all this or like what's going on? Obviously it is multi-layered and there are a lot of different things contributing to this. I think we live in a culture and in a society in a time where we're constantly being bombarded with a sense of entitlement. And I think the Garden of Eden story is really fascinating. I mean, there's so many lessons in there with regard to the, however you see it and however you believe about those things. But the Garden of Eden story is very, very interesting because you have the temptation. The temptation was, you didn't ask to be born. What God told you, you can't have that tree. It looks good. You want it. How can he tell you you can't have it? Go take it. The root of that is this sense that I should have something more. I'm kind of being deprived of something that I really want. What is this commandment stuff? What is this telling me I can't have that? And we're being bombarded with that at a massive scale. The internet has created this incredible range of choices. And so there's always this feeling like if I choose this, oh, maybe I'm missing out on something better. If I marry this person, well, there's probably someone better down in Argentina that I haven't met yet. How can I really commit to this if what I should have is the person who's going to satisfy me more than this person is. It's really affected our ability to commit to a relationship because you always have this nagging pull that there's something better out there. There's something better for me. And you mix porn into that. And porn is all about entitlement. I don't have to feel anything for this person. We have guys that go to prostitutes because they want the girlfriend experience without the actual making a relationship and having to really care about her. But we're being fed this from politicians. We're being fed it in churches. We're being fed it on constant advertising. The messaging is that you are entitled to more than you have today. If you buy into that, then what is the response? The response is you just notice what you don't have. You don't have what you have. You stop being grateful for what you do have. And you start comparing and saying, no, I don't have that. And then so somebody's keeping me from it. So I'm the victim here. I'm being kept from the pleasure, from the satisfaction, from all the good stuff that I'm supposed to have in life, and somebody's keeping me from it. And therefore, I'm justified in taking something. So if you convince what happened with the Black Lives Matter, you know, with the riots and the looting and stuff, I mean, you convince people that they're victims, that they have no chance of getting ahead because this is a systemic racist society. You have no chance of getting ahead. That's a tremendous motivation for an incentive to go and take what you want, because I'm the victim. I'm being kept from what I want, so I'm just going to go take it. And when you add porn into that, where you're looking at all of these things that are unnatural, painful, you're constantly bombarded with imagery and kind of teased with these, like, oh, what does that feel like? I should have that. My wife's not going to do that. My girlfriend's not going to do that. I'm being cheated out of this experience that I should have. And as long as we buy into that sense of entitlement, Man, we are just spinning out of control. And I think the antidote is responsibility. And I think this is why someone like Jordan Peterson has been so popular. His message is, shut up. You're not a victim. Get responsible. Take control of your life. So I just wanted to recap real quick because you said the one fundamental issue is entitlement. And the result of that is an insatiable desire to want more of what you don't have rather than be grateful for what you do have. And I think that framework right there is a game changer for anybody. I just want to stop and let people process that because if you can get to a place where you are genuinely grateful for being alive, that you can be grateful for that person being that person and not wanting from them, just wanting to give to them. When you put yourself in a very powerful state, 
where you then you have the bandwidth to give to the world rather than just being it's kind of like the entitlement mentality turns you into a leech where you just go around seeing what the world can offer you today and that's what our modern day version expression of capitalism has kind of morphed into which is everything is a consumable product including people that's where human trafficking comes from where you can commodify a human being but all of this is under the umbrella of an entitlement mentality and i think that is something worth combating that is something worth fighting because at the heart of it if you look at religion most religions at the heart of it is really teaching you how to be grateful for the present moment for now because that's all there is but we've been so bombarded with a materialistic perspective that you cannot be possibly happy without this shiny thing or this brand new thing or this you know like throw away your phone you piece of garbage is that an iphone 4 you disgusting human being don't even talk to me until you have a much more updated version of a technology that shows that you're a part of this system right so this is not like a i hate socialism and this is not political i grew up in an extremely materialistic time when Christmas was about the size of the pile of gifts under the tree rather than the quality of the time that you spend with the people that was just the heart of it right the heart of the season but this bleeds into how we view people it really does like it really view you just like you want the latest version of a phone or some consumer product you also want to update the people in your life especially when it comes to romantic relationships because this is getting stale and this messaging is so relentless it is the heart of instagram it's the essence of instagram it's the essence of our fast paced society is like next 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 and that of course is porn because it's scroll 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 it's not one video it's a thousand videos at a time and it's never just one time it's day in and day out thousands of videos and of course that bleeds into how you view the world right so everybody wants so much more and we're just milking the earth dry of all of its resources because we have this insatiable urge to feed something that can never be fulfilled from the outside it has to come from within i don't mean to kind of take over but i wanted to stop at that point that you made cuz i think that is a paradigm shifting statement that this entitlement mentality is in a sense this insanity that we've bought into and the result is an insatiable urge that urge that leads us further and further away from anything that could possibly bring us real joy which is inside of us already well and i think it is very difficult to really connect to real happiness without gratitude the way there's a recognition that i have something really precious and this is so valuable to me and i'm so grateful for it that's really the foundation and fundamental platform upon which happiness comes and i think we don't recognize that i've been given this incredible universe the universe is still expanding and still growing there are things to captivate a limitless number of people i mean there are people who are going to get stimulated and excited by god turning sand into glass i mean there are people who get excited about all kinds of things that this world holds for us but if we stop feeling grateful it's like man the sand is too hot it's like we just start finding reasons to complain and wish that we had something better all the time and that I'm entitled to better we stop feeling grateful and that cuts us off from real joy and real happiness another thing switch gears a little bit but 
going back to the Garden of Eden. I always look at that. What was the commandment all about? You can eat from every other tree in this whole place, but this one, don't touch this one. What that was doing was protecting this potential that existed for what human life could be. It was also saying, look, I'm making you a co-creator with me. So if you don't believe in God, well, then we evolved to a point where we became responsible. At some point, I can make choices that are going to determine the type of life I live, the type of human being I am, the type of parent I am. I can make a choice that can cause trauma to eight generations of my descendants. I have that power within me because I have responsibility. I can design a weapon that could blow up the entire earth. I'm carrying this degree of responsibility. So I either evolved into that or I was given this opportunity to be a co-creator with whoever brought all this into existence, which is, in my view, this is an incredibly loving visionary who just brought all this into existence for the best possible purpose. And we failed to grasp the responsibility we were being given. And we brought about a world that was just not meant to be living in. It's just, this is something totally foreign to the design of our brains and bodies. And so responsibility is at the essence. So anything that's keeping me from being responsible for my life, for taking control of my life, look at this. What is it that's necessary to be a responsible human being? I have to be able to control myself. If I'm following every urge, every impulse, every desire that pops into my head, I cannot be a responsible person because I am not going to be trustworthy. If I'm going to be sidetracked by every impulse and everything that comes along, I cannot be trusted and I can't trust myself. And so everything's thrown out of whack. I think especially for men, I think this is really critical for men. I think women, it's a little bit different, but for men, it's self-control. We have a stronger sexual urge. We have things that really pull at us. And if we don't get that under control, if we don't prioritize, I have got to be a trustworthy person. I have to be able to trust myself that I'm going to be able to do the right thing and not just get pulled aside. I'm going to be able to keep my promises. But also my children and the people around me have to be able to trust me or I'm going to be contributing to their chaos and their inability to really understand or to live safely in this world. I carry that responsibility. And when you bring that to children, I mean, this is the thing, I think there's a couple of things that fathers provide their children that's different from the mother. And one of those is there was this very like a long study that was done that showed that fathers were more instrumental in awakening empathy in their children than the mother is. And when I first heard that, I said, what? You know, that can't be right. Moms are just so dope, man. They are just there for you and sacrificing. But it's really interesting. And a lot of it comes from the way a father plays with a child. And then what happens, there's a couple of things here. When a father actually gets on his hands and knees and he's playing with his kids, what that communicates to the kids is different from the mother. The mother was holding this child in her belly for nine months this child is growing inside of the mother. There's this natural bonding that occurs. The father doesn't have that. It's very limited. He can talk to the baby, talk to the belly, but he really doesn't have the chance to bond the way that the mother does. So when he gets in his hands and he's playing with the baby and he's bathing the baby and he's there, subconsciously what the baby's feeling is, man, this guy really wants to be with me. I must really be hot stuff. He's given up his time to be with me that awakens in the child, what that imprints on that child's brain is you are worth my time. You're worth my attention. And that gets subconsciously planted in that child's brain as they're growing up. And then when the father plays with their kids, especially if they're siblings, if a kid, you know, mother's always protective. Don't do that. You're going to get hurt. The father's pushing things to the limit. Yeah. Jump off that. Jump off that wall. I'll catch you. 
It's just like, take a risk. I'm here for you. And the way that you play, somebody ends up getting hurt. And very, I don't know about yeah. your kids, but somebody ends up in tears, which is where they learn. They realize, man, there's some limit. And once somebody starts crying, we have to stop playing. And I want to keep yeah. And so the child then learns, man, I got to think about other people. I got to think about my little sister, because if I push her down and she cries, dad's going to stop playing with me. So what they're learning is I have to care about how another person feels. And it's really interesting. And that grows in them as empathy as they get older and older and they start really feeling for other people. It's just such a beautiful thing. And it's like when I was at the UN, I learned there are over 100 million single mothers in the world which means there are at least 300 million children being raised without a father. And if the father is the main communicator of empathy, what are we raising? We have hundreds of millions of children that are growing up with a decreased amount of empathy or sidetracked empathy. And maybe that's why we're stuffing our prisons full of boys that are growing up without dads. They don't have empathy. They're willing to commit crimes. They're willing to hurt other people because they're being deprived of that natural development of empathy that comes from the dad. Yeah, that's incredible. There's a couple of kids in my life out here who grew up without dads, and I'm trying to kind of be there for them while I'm here because they're out here in Mongolia. They're kind of family. There's a little girl, and she doesn't know how to interact with me because <laughs> she doesn't really have like a father figure in her life. It's all women everywhere. So she sees me like this alien, and so I realized I can be a little bit much. So what I do is I'll play with my kids and when she feels safe to join, she'll kind of join. But then there's also this little boy here who's also a family who's the same age as one of my sons. And in the beginning, he was very soft and afraid. And now when I see him, he's like, he just whips out like this ninja stance and he wants to fight and he has no idea how to do it, but he's learning. And I was telling my sons, like, this kid doesn't know how to fight, doesn't know how to wrestle because he's never done it. We're very physical family, but it's like a service that I can provide because I know them and it's because it's a safe place that I could see that it's helping certain synapses to connect. This wire, even just physiologically, he's, he's learning how to move his body more and express himself physically, but also the joy on his face and the amount of laughter that comes from him when he's doing that, that I never saw before, that only comes from that type of play is transformative. And it's really unfortunate that he doesn't get that more and naturally. But there's something that we can do, you know, by seeing those kids and helping them to the extent that makes sense and that that's comfortable and that is appropriate. These kids are my family, so I just want to do that. But I was just very curious because they're good kids. They're all really good kids. And they've been fortunate to not fall prey to all sorts of different things. But just that lack of a certain type of parenting that they don't get because they don't have that father is like, I can see that there's a part of their brain that's just not developed, that I can at least help in some small way. But it's sad. I've had a few tearful prayers just thinking about how unnatural that is for two humans to make a child, but only one to be there to raise them. It's so fundamentally, biologically unnatural, but it's so normal in our society that it's like a person grows up, only half of them really fully developed, at least for a time. You yeah. can make that up later in life, but it, especially like you said, in those first four years, in my opinion, is like I've seen a lot of science about like the first four to seven, they say in terms of like your subconscious mind and your worldview and stuff like that. 
if you have the two sides of God, the male and female, telling you that you're worthy, challenging you when you're being a jerk, it completely transforms how you view yourself and the world around you. So I wanted to start wrapping up soon, and I do really strongly sense the need for a sequel to this. But just for the sake of keeping to a time frame, because we do live in time and space, I would like to know more about Father Khan and because you've noticed a clear gaping problem in our society and you're trying to address it. And now that you've done it a few years in a row, what do you see as viable solutions or hope that you've gleaned from being a part of that world of people who are in the trenches working to resolve these issues? Like, what hope do you have? Because obviously you're not hopeless because you're still active. <laughs> so what are the solutions that are bubbling up or what's the hope in your heart? Like what, how does that look? Yeah, I'm just absolutely inspired by this work. And I think that it is transformative. So what we've held like four one day conferences. And so we had okay. speakers, we have one year we had 20 workshops and they're on everything from pornography. How do you talk to your kids about porn? How do you as a pastor deal with porn issues? what parents need to know about fentanyl poisoning. But we've tried to address a number of issues that, that will really help parents become better parents, more aware, and also how to deal with particular issues that are problems for fathers and also for families. We now have our subheading under FatherCon, it's never too early, it's never too late, fathers matter. Because we have just so many fathers that are dealing with some guilt, shame, they're feeling like they screwed up, maybe their kids are better off without them. And I want to really counter that. I mean, unless you are really addicted to torturing your children or really abusing them in some way, then get some help and be removed from them. But in most cases, if we can really awaken a sense of our own significance and that our children need us, they need us for a lifetime. And especially on this panel at the UN, I was with a guy who's over, he oversees drugs globally. And he said, there's a window between 12 and 18. And if a kid doesn't start using drugs between 12 and 18, the chances are he won't. And I started thinking 12 to 14 is the average age that kids get trafficked and get exploited. And it's like, there's this period between 12 and 18, you start thinking of brain development, right? We have a prefrontal cortex that doesn't kick in. It doesn't really start clarifying consequences to our behavior until we get into our 20s. So the teenage years is when, man, the world is full of possibilities. My body has reached a point of development where I can actually do stuff I can challenge things. The world has all of these options and possibilities. I want to check it out. I want to find out what's good for me and what I'm good at. It's this incredibly exciting period of time as adolescents, as human beings develop. But what do they need? They need a prefrontal cortex. What's the prefrontal cortex? Their parents. The parents are the prefrontal cortex during those adolescent years. But if you haven't established a trust relationship with your kids by then, then their kids are going into adolescence thinking like, oh man, I'm going to lie to my parents. I'm going to go off and try this anyway. I know they won't like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. So we have to really establish ourselves as the gateway, but also the support system for our kids when they reach that age group. So this is really my emphasis and the speakers that I bring in, the type of people that I have participating in FatherCon, are to really like help fathers and help mothers to see the significance of the father. It's never been a men's organization. It's not like other men's groups or men's empowerment. It's not that. It's around fatherhood, which means there's a mother, which means there's children. And it's all centered around a responsibility. And 
this should be the source of my greatest joy and success in life should come from my parenting, not from all this other stuff, but what kind of parent am I? And mothers need to see that because we get mothers who got hurt by their husband. Husband's watching porn, they get hurt. Understandable. But if they don't understand, that guy is important to your kids. So how do you not create a toxicity or create kind of a demonization of your husband because you're mad at him so that then the children lose out on having a dad? And so I found these amazing stories and people that I've met, wives who completely were hurt by their husbands if they constantly testify to the father, to the kids. And they maintain this kind of a healthy relationship that can still grow between the kids and the father, even though the woman was hurt. So anyway, that means we need to educate both. So it's not just a question of this is a men's group, but it's really centered around fatherhood. Fatherhood is very important. And like you said, kids are growing up with only half of the experience they should be having. And that's affecting them in so many ways. Most of them really not good. The main thing that men leave that they've said to me when they leave, they go, man, I see my role as a father completely different now. And they carry that and they talk to their wives about it and they change the way they behave with their kids. And I think one thing that's really important, I'm so sorry, I'm going to race through some here. Kids are constantly assigning meaning to their experience. And I think as dads, we can get busy. We get clouded by our own perspective and seeing things that are important to us in our lives and the duties that we have. We don't realize that that child is deciding what this means. So when they make a card, they draw this card for you and they give it to you and you throw it aside and say, look, I don't got time for this right now. That child is going to assign meaning to that experience. And that meaning could be really not good. Like, I'm not worth much. I'm not as important as his work. That means money is more valuable than me. Okay, I'm going to hold on to that idea and I'm going to live my life believing that is true. And if something doesn't disrupt that, I'm going to live my life based on a four-year-old's assigning meaning to the experience. And if we don't understand that as parents, we could be avoiding so much of what we're communicating to our kids. So father kind of is really like, how do we create this kind of environment where men really start seeing themselves differently? And then we provide, we have so many service providers there. We have, whether it's a church men's group or whether it's mental health or how to get a job, we have so many representatives of different organizations that are doing stuff. So instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and try to do stuff that somebody's already doing and they just need to know that it's there, I want to fill all the gaps, any gaps that's there where something is missing. And how do we really elevate the significance of who we are as fathers? Because we need to understand that and our society needs to understand it. Absolutely. How do people connect with FatherCon and know more about it and help it? Obviously, now we're getting so many requests for things that we just don't have the funding. So funding is really important because the need is there. I mean, I've got requests to come to Texas, to North Carolina, to Chile, to Uganda and Kenya. I've got these requests sitting there. And right now, we just don't have the funds to be able to go and carry what we're doing to those other places. But we will. We need the funding. Our website is www.father-con.org. So it's father-con.org. In my email, you can email me at patrick at father-con.org. And I would love to hear from anyone. We've scratched the surface here today of just how deep this is. And yeah. I want to come back because I want to talk to you about the socialism side of things because it's actually really, really interesting. Starting from I think we have to up through up here today. And it's really, really interesting. And we really have to be aware of it because our compassion is being played upon. And so we're starting to feel like, oh, I gotta be compassionate and think this way. But actually it's if you step back and look at this macro agenda, it's 
Serious. It's quite the cliffhanger. I promise you that we will do that and in the actually near future, in the next month or two, if you can. But I would say this is a good place to end part one. Part two coming soon, everybody. And yeah, please reach out to him and let him know because this obviously is very important work. It's integral work. And to know that you're impacting people or that people are curious about your work or support you is like a currency that helps us fuel our efforts when we do things like nonprofits. So reach out to him if you have any questions, if you have any support, any comments, and if you have a whole lot of money, go to www.father-con.com dot org right yeah. and you can split and, it between uh, high noon and father con you know that's we <laughs> i am thanks buddy. A firm i appreciate believer that. In, in high noon and what you do to bring a healthy disruption to behavior Absolutely. that makes us not love ourselves so much i really love all that high noon does and so you call me and i'll be there you can take that to the bank i will take it to the zoom bank and i'll schedule in another meeting soon this week or next week all right, everybody, thank you. You know how to reach them. As always, just let us know if you have any anything that you want from us, need from us. God bless you all. Hey, everybody, Andrew Love here. And I just wanted to let you know that we have completely revamped our offering known as the Ascend Program. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that the Ascend Program has been our flagship porn recovery program for years and we've added a lot of content we've tweaked things here and there but recently we've completely done an overhaul in terms of our approach to recovery and here's why you see originally we tried to appeal to everybody and we just let everybody come in anybody who said that they wanted to tackle porn we just let them join and there's a very low barrier of entry but what we found was that a lot of people who thought they were ready to tackle their porn addiction or who kind of wanted to they didn't always show up in the best way and they in many cases brought the group dynamic down and so what we've done is we've made the barrier of entry a little higher and in turn we've made our offering much more powerful let me explain so when you sign up now there is a small fee for everybody to sign up but you get that money back once you finish that quarter it's in kind of an escrow as a challenge for you to take your time more seriously because if you put money into something and you're only going to get it back out if you really try if you really attend your classes if you really do all the work then guess what your motivation to do that work is much higher so that's the first thing. Second thing is we are, of course, offering our weekly call groups as a part of the Ascend program. So you'll have your group that you meet with every single week, and that's super important. But in addition to that, you're going to get daily accountability. You'll be able to message with somebody every single day in order to stay on track with your North Star goal. And more than that, every quarter you get two one-on-one -on -one calls with a high noon staff. That is a one-on-one -on -one call where we do a deep dive into where you're at and where you're going. And we help you to diagnose precisely what actions will be most useful for your time, for your energy, so that you can get the biggest results for your energy spent. So we are doing our best here at Highland to make sure that you grow the most in the shortest amount of time. It's all a part of our new roadmap that we've created. Anyway, we've been doing this for a while, but we are always getting better and better. And this quarter, the first quarter in 2023, is going to be monumental. So please sign up for this Ascend program. Take it super seriously and just watch what happens. Watch how your life transforms in a short period of time.